On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Sam Renahan about Baptist covenant theology. So we're going to ask him, what exactly is covenant theology to kind of ground us? We're going to ask him, what is Baptist covenant theology? How does it differ from other covenant theologies? How does it differ from dispensationalism? Uh, and, and one that I'm really interested in is, if you're a Baptist, can you say that the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of grace or is the covenant of grace and still remain a, uh, a Baptist who can affirm the Second London Confession of Faith. We talk along those lines about what it means to subscribe to confession, uh, how much we have to affirm of it to still subscribe to it. I think there's a lot of interesting questions answered in this episode. Uh, Dr. Renahan is really the top tier premier scholar on this topic in the world who's had access uh, to sources that some people have never seen. Uh, a lot of us have never seen. So really, really helpful episode here. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that hopes to encourage deep and clear thinking about all things in relation to God, uh, particularly related to analytic Baptist and confessional theology, um, though we by no means are limited to those, but that's what we like to focus on because we kind of enjoy those topics and think that they're important and useful. On today's episode, we are lucky enough to have Dr. Sam Renahan with us to discuss covenant theology. So... I think he is probably on, on the frontier of doing a lot of the uh, contemporary work on this issue from a Baptist confessional standpoint. I can't think of anyone who's probably doing more work in this area now than he is. Um, and I think it's really pretty widespread, and a lot of people who are at least in the quote-unquote 1689 circles uh, are familiar with him. But for those who aren't, um, I think he is the person to go talk to about this subject. So I'm very excited to talk with him about it. Um, before we jump into the topic, though, why don't I give you the chance to introduce yourself to us, to our listeners? Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you, Brandon and Jordan, for having me on the show. I'm Sam Renahan. I am a pastor of Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada, California. That's in L.A. County, about 15 minutes from Disneyland. And um, yeah, I've been called to minister there, and I'm I'm pleased to do so week in week out. Terrific. So, as I mentioned, that we want to talk about covenant theology. Now, before we get into all the intricacies of Baptist covenant theology, um, Reformed Baptist covenant theology, if we're allowed to use that term, uh, or any of those other things, why don't can we just like lay the, the groundwork for those who may not be familiar with this topic at all or or may have just a cursory level understanding of it? So maybe what is a covenant to begin with for the very uninitiated? And then for those who are a little bit more familiar, just give us a little bit, I guess, of an idea of what covenant theology is. A covenant, a simple definition of a covenant is a commitment guaranteed by threats. Uh, some people call it a, a sanctioned commitment or a commitment with sanctions, which means you can have an agreement with someone about something. Okay, let's let's do this, or I will and you will do that. Uh, but we've just got an agreement. Covenants are are more formal, 
and they are protected by threats. I will do this or else some kind of consequence happens to me. You will do this or else some kind of consequence happens to you. Uh, and so sometimes other people talk about oaths. You, you make a promise that is that must be performed or there's some kind of consequence. So the, the terminology can, can vary, but the idea is a commitment that's guaranteed by threats. And covenant theology is a theological discipline that, that looks at the scriptures and sees that God has related to man through covenants throughout history, and that it's not just because that's how chose, God chose how to relate to man, but it was also how he brought about his purpose of salvation in Christ for all those who come to him by faith. So covenant theology is concerned with the, hist the progressive history of redemption and the unity of God's plan and how that all relates uh, together, as well as some of the more systematic details of, of covenants themselves. But I think covenant theology is, is, much, is very broadly concerned with both history and system. So as I'm thinking about this, it seems that most people, I guess, would put covenant theology on one side of a spectrum and put what's called dispensationalism on another side of the spectrum. What, is there a helpful way to think about the, the main differences between those two systems? We might be able to give a variety of legitimate answers to that question. I think that one which runs the risk of maybe stereotyping or overgeneralizing, but one, one would be that covenant theology sees a singular unified plan uh, developing from the garden to, from creation to consummation, really. Whereas it, it's my understanding that a more dispensational view, although there would be variations among them, would, would see a sort of one track plan going one way for a certain people and then another track plan going another way for another people, Jews and and believers and, and such things. And so there's more discontinuity. There isn't quite that singular unity that covenant theology of both Baptist and Pado-Baptist persuasions uh, understand. So maybe you had something else in mind, but that, that would be my answer. Uh, I think that's that's pretty helpful um, in thinking the, di the difference, I guess, uh, about the plan. So, and I guess some dispensationalists of the progressive variety would I mean, I don't know. Maybe they would say that there was one plan and then that plan, I guess, changed from old to new covenant in, in a way. I Sometimes it seems that there are so many varieties, it's, it's kind of difficult to bucket them all into one uh, way of understanding things. Right. I think that anyway. Paul, yeah, Paul in the book of Acts and in his epistles, he, he talks about the mystery unveiled and there there's always from from before creation i mean that's that language doesn't work but god has only ever had one plan and and what the jews are seeing in the new testament mm -hmm. after christ's ascension what the jews are seeing well in jesus life and in his after his ascension all of that is not a detour it is the destination of the old testament it's what israel was driving towards the whole time and our dispensational brethren would would probably disagree about how that's understood so um, in your book, uh, The Mystery of Christ, which is still relatively new, and that's for our listeners, um, put out by founders, um, you make a, a distinction between um, matter and form when it comes to covenants. Can you explain the difference in matter and form for us? Yeah, Matt, the, those terms I use to explain 
or to help people understand how different kinds of commitments in covenants create different kinds of covenants. So if you think about different materials like wood or metal, uh, those are different materials. And so, but you can use those materials to, to build different things. Or let, let me start over. Think of gold and silver. Gold and silver are different materials, but you can shape each one into a ring. And so each one has the form of a ring, but one is a gold ring and one is a silver ring. So the material, the matter is different. The, the form is still a ring, but the it's now a gold ring or a silver ring. And so, so also in covenants, I talk about how the commitments are the material basis. Like this covenant is made out of these kinds of commitments. And these commitments make a covenant, but you get different kinds of covenants. And so if the commitments are you will obey and do this or else, well, that's a, that's a covenant built out of commitments of obedience or commitments of works and law. And so we use term, terms like, okay, that is a formal covenant of works or a formal covenant of law and such things because it is built out of basic commitments of, of obedience and faithfulness. Whereas a covenant that's based more on, I will give you this, I will provide this for you, um, the basic commitments are free for the for the one who is in covenant with the giver. And so we talk about those covenants as covenants of grace or even covenants of promise. You can use different different terminology to, to say the same thing. And so the form, they're both covenants or they're all covenants in, in this discussion, but but they're also distinct because they've been built out of different things. So that that's what I mean when I talk about matter and form. What kind of commitments make that make up this covenant? And so what can we call it? at the at the end of the day that's, that's helpful um and and i guess just for the for the listeners we're kind of going to be jumping in and out of um i guess we would say hermeneutics so how we interpret the bible but also we're going to be going through some history so um and i think it's kind of hard to divide it up and just have this sectional history and this sec- sectional hermeneutics because it's going to be a lot of um, back and forth on how different historical figures, you know, interpreted this covenant versus that covenant and this and that. So um, all that to say, um, you have made a, made it a point to emphasize that there is a, a unity and a diversity all um, in the history of Reformed covenant theology. So can you just take a few minutes and and tell us what are those things that that provide the unity and then where we see the diversity? When I was doing research for my dissertation, one of the things that I wanted to look into and find out was in what ways did the Reformed in the 16th and 17th centuries, in what ways did they use covenant theology? For what purposes? What questions were they asking? Or what questions did covenant theology answer? Where does it appear in their treatises and their systematic theologies and such things? And what I found in general was that the covenant theology develops in two areas. The first is when they talk about the law and the gospel as two opposite paths of righteousness. You can be righteous in your own works according to the law. You can be righteous in the works of Christ through the gospel. Both are paths of righteousness, but one is personal righteousness and the other is imputed righteousness. And so that law gospel distinction, it develops into what early on is called the gospel covenant and the law covenant and, and such things and develops later into the covenant of works and the covenant 
of grace. And so in, in the development of the terminology of covenant theology, you may see development there, but there's an underlying core unity that covenant theology explains how mankind has fallen in Adam and is condemned, and mankind, the elect, are freed from that condemnation through the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. And those two covenants of works and grace are founded on the law and the gospel. And that, that continues united throughout Reformed covenant theology uh, and into Baptist covenant theology. And if you look at Second uh, London chapter 7, it affirms that basic unity. All mankind condemned in Adam in the covenant of works and the elect freed from that in the covenant of grace. And so that, that is the core fund, fundamental unity. But what about diversity? Well, the, the Reformed also discussed the law and the gospel in terms of successive periods of history. In the time of the law and the time of the gospel, which basically means pre-incarnation and post-incarnation, and under that category, they're not talking about two opposite things. They're not talking about the law and the gospel as two things opposed to each other, works and, and, and grace, but rather they're just talking about a, a progressive, redemptive, historical um, unfolding, God's plan of, of redemption. And under that consideration of the law and the gospel, they would often think of those two things as two phases of the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace during the time of the law, and the covenant of grace during the time of the gospel. And it's in that area of discussion of the law and the gospel and the historic progression where you get diversity. You have differences of opinion. Most of the diversity stems from their views of the Mosaic covenant. Uh, they're, they're all agreed. Salvation is in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, through all history. That's not disputed. But they question okay, how does the Mosaic Covenant, for example, fit into the Gospel Covenant when it, it makes demands and curses and, and punishes? And so they had different answers for that, uh, a, a lot of different answers. And there, there are still a lot of different answers to that today. Um, and so you see diversity when it comes to questions of how do the Old Testament covenants relate to the covenant of grace? Uh, and but the unity um, returns to, there's no question that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ in all of history. So is, is, um, is that, just to make sure I'm understanding, is this what, what you're referring to when you say um, law and gospel dogmatically versus law and gospel historically? So the historically yes. is where the, um, the diversity lies, is that correct? Yes. Okay, just making sure I'm following from um, from your book. Jordan, you can go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. No, no. I was just thinking, you know, it seems like some uh, more Presbyterian-leaning people push back on the idea that um, maybe, I don't know if they would say the unity that you've said is too thin for what counts as Reformed unity, or maybe they just say there's something that, I mean, baptism, if you deny infant baptism, then you can't be part of the unified understanding of Reformed Covenant theology, Wh whatever they may say. Um, are there any others that maybe are Presbyterians or, or believe in infant baptism who, who agree with you as far as this is what counts as unity and this is what counts as diversity? Or is that more just kind of across the map, depending on who you talk to? Well, 
what I'm trying to say is simply descriptive historical theology. I'm, it's it's describing the history uh, that describing the theology and historical perspective, how one wants to to create labels and and organize them today is is not my concern. Uh, I'm just trying to read the sources and say this is where I see them all agreeing, and this is where I see them uh, diversifying and disagreeing at times with each other within the reformed camp. Um, they don't necessarily go at each other about some of those things until more in, in English context later. But uh, so if if people want to slice it up a different way these days, that's that's really a separate question in my opinion. Okay, that makes sense. So between these two, um, I guess unity and diversity. What role did the hermeneutics play in that diversity? From what it sounded like, that was, I mean, that's kind of like the chief driving force was how do we understand the old to the new? So is that a hermeneutical issue that's going on? Yes, um, because there's there's a variety of different influences and pressure. I don't know if pressure is the right word, but, you know, ideological boundaries that push people in different directions. And f for some, if, if they're convinced very much like Luther, that the law is the law and it, it condemns and commands and the gospel is the gospel and it pardons and, and frees and perfects, then where those, if that is really, really strong in your mind, then how do you treat Moses? Well, you're going to say Moses is a covenant of works as, as Luther did. And and so if the law-gospel distinction distinguished dogmatically as opposite paths of righteousness is, is very strong, it's going to push someone, it's going to cause them to tend towards seeing the Mosaic Covenant as a covenant of works. And just by as a tangent here, um, Bunyan, in his work about law and grace, he cites Luther on Galatians. And you can see Luther's uh, covenant theology in the Pilgrim's Progress. Remember what Adam and Moses do to Christian, if you've read the Pilgrim's Progress? They beat the snot out of the guy, you know? Uh, so Bunyan is saying, don't go to, not just to Adam, but don't go to Moses. Don't go to mm -hmm. Sinai. Don't go to the Mosaic Covenant. And he's, he's working with Luther. So that, that's just using two illustrations to say the law-gospel distinction um, tends, pushes people towards seeing the Mosaic Covenant as a covenant of works. But then there are, are others in the Reformed, uh, among the Reformed in the 16th and 17th centuries, who, for them, anything post-fall has to be the covenant of grace. Because they, and I'm thinking of John Ball here, for, for someone like him, the idea is, how could God ever relate to the creature fallen unless by way of grace through mediation? How could God be in covenant with fallen mankind unless it be by grace and mediation? And so for Ball, he will see the Mosaic Covenant as a covenant of grace. Um, and so those those are just two examples to say different ideas, even just systematically, can sort of nudge one in certain directions. It kind of narrows the lanes and they go this way and the other goes that way, depending on what is controlling for them, what is foundational for them. And But you'll still get in Luther and Ball, if we use those as opposites, you'll still get the law and the gospel. Ball will not deny the law condemns and commands and the gospel pardons and perfects. He, he would, of course, affirm that. So you get that unity 
and diversity. So I'm not sure if if it's um, if I would use the word hermeneutics in those cases, but then there are other cases that we can discuss, and, and I think that we will, where hermeneutic, hermeneutics do come more into play uh, to cause diversity. And I'm thinking of uh, John Owen and or John Cameron and John Owen more in this in this case, but I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself by bringing them up. Yeah. Um, I do. I definitely do want to talk about them because it, it seemed to be in reading uh, from Shadow to Substance that they were just key names that kept uh, coming up over and over again. But I do want to talk about um, typology because I think this is important. Um, and this was actually, I really, really enjoyed um, your chapter on typology and the mystery of Christ. I'm going to have to go back and read it again. But can you just explain for the listeners um, what is typology the relationship between a type and an anti-type and how these analogies and and everything work um when we're uh, interpreting particularly the old testament my book has a really great definition of typology from greg beale (laughs) (laughs) so his definition is what i just quote verbatim in my book because i think it's great but without without quoting the whole thing i think that typology can be summed up as uh, analogy and escalation. So types and anti-types are, have a similarity and analogy between each other, but the, the anti-type is greater uh, than the type. And that's very commonly understood. That's very commonly taught. But one of the things that I emphasize in, in my book that I think needs to be more openly said, I think that you can see it in certain theologians, but it's not necessarily stated, is that types are not just greater than their anti, excuse me, anti-types are not just greater than their types, they're also other than their types. And that that little and other is very important for me, and I believe it is it is biblical, and let me explain why, if you don't mind. What I want us to affirm is that types are their own thing, in their own context, in their own time, with their own function and purpose. But because they are types, they're always designed to reveal something greater and other than themselves. And that other and greater reality is also its own thing in its own time and in its own context. So each one has its own validity, the type and the anti-type, but the the type reveals the anti-type and the anti-type just is itself. So the, the scriptural example, the easy one to use is animal sacrifices. And the writer to the Hebrews talks about them as, as types and shadows. The whole Levitical system from the priesthood to the sacrifices is a shadow of something greater. But is it also other? Well, we can prove it's other because the writer to the Hebrews says that the blood, the animal blood, does not cleanse the conscience. It does not forgive sins. It cannot perfect the conscience of the one who draws near to God through it. Rather, it has a reminder of sin. And that, that when the writer to the Hebrews says that, it could be very confusing because if you read uh, the Old Testament, if you read that where the sacrifices are instituted and how they're explained, God very clearly says through Moses that, that expiation does happen through those animal sacrifices, that sins are forgiven. So what's the difference? And the difference is that the type functions in its own context. The animal blood restores you to a ceremonial holiness I'm no longer pure. I cannot therefore be in the sanctuary of God or in the promised land once they enter the land. I don't have a right to be in this holy space. Animal blood restores my holiness to remain in this place, but it it only restores an outward ceremonial holiness, 
which is why it never perfects the conscience inwardly, and it reminds the person inwardly, I remain guilty and condemned. Whereas the blood of Jesus Christ, of course, uh, once and for all, perfects the conscience of those who draw near to God through Christ. And so what we've just seen is that each one does have its own reality. Each one has its own function. It's not that the animal blood was a joke the whole time. No, they had to offer those sacrifices. They needed to cleanse themselves in order to remain pure as God's people in Israel. Um, but it did not take away sins. And the writer to the Hebrews says that the new covenant forgives the sins that the first covenant could not. The Mosaic covenant could not remove the sins, that the new, but the new covenant does, does take them away. And so here we have a type-antitype relationship where you, you have analogy and escalation. Okay, the, the spilling of blood of Christ is very analogous to the spilling of the blood of animals, especially the Day of Atonement. And it's escalated. It's greater. It's the Son of God. And it's other. One did not forgive sins in the court of heaven, in the conscience. One does forgive sins in the court of heaven and in the conscience. And I believe that biblically, therefore, typology needs to be understood not just as analogy and escalation, but also as analogy and escalation with an otherness in the antitypes, a, a greater and other reality that the antitypes bring, um, bring into history. Yeah, well, that that's really helpful. Um, I don't know if I, Jordan, I, I'm just going to jump to Owen and Cameron unless you have something else you want to ask. Um, I guess, bef I mean, maybe Owen and Cameron kind of set the groundwork for what I want to ask. So you can go ahead and ask that. Yeah, because I guess to narrow the scope from um, the how, how we're defining Reformed Covenant theology here um, now to... Baptist covenant theology, there seems to be, at least if I was understanding from Shattered to Substance, right, that these two men are like key figures that kind of are a bridge from the broader stream to the Baptist stream. Not that they were Baptist, but that if any of the uh, hardcore <laughs> Presbyterians are listening, but in the sense that Baptists took some of their key distinctives and, and used them to, to build their... Um, unique, I guess, uh, Baptist covenant theology. So what is it about Owen and Cameron that that Baptist theologians, what is it about their work um, that, that Baptist theologians uh, like so much that they wanted to bring in when they were forming their own? Sure. Uh, Cameron and Owen are important figures for understanding, the first and foremost, the diversity of Reformed covenant theology itself. Even if that's all you're studying, those two figures are, are very important. Uh, in terms of particular Baptist history or Baptistic Congregationalist history, uh, Cameron and Owen are also important. We, we don't have time to go into all of this, but as, as the law and the gospel develop into covenant of works, covenant of grace, and as different theologians relate Moses more or less to grace or works, you know, some of them fall on one side, some on the other side, Cameron's genius you may think he's dead wrong, so it's not genius, but I, I think his genius. Cameron's genius was to to see the Mosaic Covenant as a, a third thing. It is not the covenant of works. It is not the covenant of grace. It is rather what he called the subservient covenant. Uh, it is, and he, he clarifies, it is based on works. Uh, it does condition promises on, on obedience. But he says, you have 
it's in a, it's not in Eden. It's not the same commands. You know, there's no trees or anything like that. Uh, it's not the same penalties in the sense that you can offer sacrifices for them. So he comes up with all these reasons why it's not the covenant of works, but it, it does revive it in certain senses because it is based on obedience and, and it does threaten the ones who will not obey and will not cleanse themselves. And then he, he gives all these reasons why, nor is it the covenant of grace, because you know it does not forgive sins and it is about life in Canaan. And yet he says it's subservient. It is designed to, to push and to, um, to push Israelites towards Christ, to see their unworthiness, to see their sinfulness, and to reveal the gospel through the sacrificial system and other parts of, of Israel's existence. And so Cameron's not saying it's this third thing that's, you know, well, it's just over there and forget about it. No, he's saying it, it, is, it is using Adam's covenant. It's showing it to people. And it's also showing Christ's covenant to people in a subservient way to progress redemptive history. And the, the particular Baptists, well, excuse me, let me back up. Cameron justified some of his arguments with typology. And he talked about how primarily circumcision separated Adam, uh, Abraham's offspring from the rest of the world and showed them that Canaan belonged to them. And then he says, secondarily, uh, it typed out, that means revealed as a type, it typed out Jesus Christ and the righteousness that he would provide. Um, and so Cameron begins to, uh, to see typology as two distinct but related things as well. And Cameron's typology was quoted by John Toombs, the Anglican anti-Pedo-Baptist, um, who made arguments that the particular Baptists quoted and used regularly. So Toombs used Cameron's typology to, to oppose infant baptism and Pedo-Baptist Pado, covenant theology. And another particular Baptist, Christopher Blackwood, published a pro-Credo-Baptist argument as he transitioned from the Church of England out to become a particular Baptist. And another author read his work and said, I've seen this before in John Cameron. Um, and so it's, it's, I want to be careful and say it's not that you'll see Cameron regularly quoted in the particular Baptists. You won't. But he is a contextual factor. He's already uh, put forward his arguments in, in, the, um, in the community of scholar, scholarship. It's our, the ideas are already out there, and we do see them intersect with the Baptists through John Toombs, uh, and through Christopher Blackwood, it's not that Blackwood quoted Cameron, but someone else read Cameron, read Blackwood and said, oh, this looks like John Cameron. So Cameron's important for contextual understanding. It's also really important. I'm sorry if I'm talking, if I'm answering too long about these. No, things. this is great. Please continue. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's also important because if you're familiar with Matt Bingham's book, uh, Orthodox Radicals, he he makes an argument that the core group that became known as particular Baptists were are best understood as Baptistic Congregationalists. And think about Congregationalist covenant theology. Where do Cameron's ideas really take root? I'd said the particular Baptists, you won't see Cameron like heavily quoted, but guess where you do see Cameron heavily quoted? Who translate who translates Cameron into English and republishes him? Samuel Bolton, an independent. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs uses Cameron's covenant theology, his same model. Thomas Goodwin uses it. 
uh, and cites him. And John Owen does not cite John Cameron, but John Owen's understanding of the Mosaic Covenant is almost like statistically extremely high overlap with John Cameron's view. And so if Cameron's views were flowering in the Congregationalists, and if we see him cited and sort of, you know, diving in and intersecting with the Baptist literature, um, then he, his work is especially helpful for understanding where particular Baptist covenant theology was, was coming from. Because one of the things that the particular Baptists did, not necessarily all of them and not necessarily in this way, but many of them applied the same logic and argumentation that Cameron used for the Mosaic covenant to the Abrahamic covenant. They said the Abrahamic covenant is primarily about earthly promises, one of which is the birth of the Messiah. So this is not an alternate track. This is not you know, Anabaptist theology where it's like Israel was a fatted calf to be slaughtered, you know, given the fat of the land and then kill him. No, no, no. They, they said Abraham's covenant begins a nation on earth who is to give birth to the Messiah. Uh, and so therefore it's, it's typical. And, the, and they see it, of course, as you must keep the command of circumcision or you're cut off. And so they, they understand it as a subservient covenant for them, uh, primarily based on works, though they see promises involved, certainly. So if you take Cameron's view and you, you slide his thought from Moses back to Abraham, you get the particular Baptist view, essentially. I'm not saying they all put it together that way, but it, it's, a, it's a small step ideologically. It's a small step in terms of thinking and hermeneutics to, to go from uh, Moses back to Abraham with Cameron's thinking. Now, Cameron did not do that. Cameron did not go that far. So it's, it's not John Cameron's theology at that point. Uh, but it, it is, Cameron is so much closer to the particular Baptist than, say, John Ball, whom I said previously talked about the Mosaic Covenant, not just as a covenant of works, but as the covenant of grace. And there are certainly many paedo-baptists who held that, and the Westminster Confession confess, confesses it. So that's Cameron. We didn't even get to Owen. Uh, I can be brief about Owen because... Um, Michael, not Michael Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> I do love Michael Bolton, though. So let me just say that. When Michael oh, Bolton, Brandon, man, you and your choice of music. <laughs> <laughs> when when Samuel Bolton republishes, translates, and publishes Cameron's thought in the 1640s, it's not until Owen's third volume on Hebrews doesn't come out till the 1680s which means that the particular Baptists had already been making those kinds of arguments well before Owen's mature and developed arguments about Hebrews 8 to 10 come out. That's so Owen's importance is not that he came up with things that the Baptists took and ran, but rather they're saying, look, here's someone that everyone loves and respects making the same arguments that we do in every way. And, and, and they even use Owen about the Abrahamic covenant. Let me be clear. Owen does not believe that the Abrahamic covenant, Owen's writings do not teach that the Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of works. It is the covenant of grace in Owen's writings. But they still appeal to Owen on Abraham because they see Owen set up everything for the Baptist position and then just not go there. Mm -hmm. uh, so Owen's theology is not so much creating ideas that the Baptists are appropriating, but rather they're saying, look how close this is to us. And you guys treat us as something so different and crazy, you know, like 
hello, hello. Um, so Owen's important, Cameron's important for contextually bringing these ideas into the community of scholarship. Owen is important 40 years later uh, for being a prominent, well-loved, widely read figure whom the Baptists see making almost all of their arguments, not just on the Mosaic Covenant, but on the Abrahamic Covenant, which is why Cox only writes up through Abraham. He stops and says, now go read Owen on Moses. So would it be fair to say that, and I'm, I'm sure there's no quote, well, maybe there is, I don't know, I don't want to say I'm sure about anything, um, that the Baptists were saying if if Owen um, would be consistent in applying his hermeneutics and his arguments, then then he would land here where we are. Is that what they're, is that what they're saying? Yeah, they, they do say that because um, before Owen's third volume on Hebrews came out, his it was either the first or the second I could check. His first or his second, it must have been, must have been the first in his extra citations. It's there where they see his arguments about the Abrahamic covenant. They see those things favoring their view, but not going all the way to their view. And particular Baptists like Edward Hutchinson and Thomas DeLon quoted those arguments about Abraham from Owen in their works to say, look. And a, a Congregationalist um, responded to them uh, what was his name? Anyway, a congregation, a congregationalist responded to them. It'll come to me in just a second and said, don't use Owen. You know that he does not believe in infant, excuse me. You know that he affirms infant baptism. You can't stop using him for Baptist purposes. And the Baptists respond and said, you are free to reconcile his practice to his theology. If you can, they say, we just think it's inconsistent. So, so yes, they, they very clearly said, we think this 100% favors our position, and they they challenged this congregationalist reconcile it, which he, he didn't he didn't respond. He just said, "Well, you know he doesn't believe infant." Excuse me, I keep saying that. You know he doesn't. You know he affirms infant baptism, so stop saying these things. And they say, "You you please explain it to us. Like work it out, reconcile it if you can." So I think along the lines of this, we've been talking about I guess different views. And how the Baptist, I guess, shifted the covenant theology a little bit to, from the Mosaic to the Abrahamic covenant. I, to what extent is there a diversity among Baptists that are more, I guess, reformed in their own uh, theology? How, how Do all Baptists say the Abrahamic covenant is just like the Mosaic covenant? Or, or do they have different views on the Abraham or Moses? Or um, what is that diversity look like? In the 17th century? Yeah, in the 17th century. Yeah, the statistically, there's a very high majority that affirms the Abrahamic covenant not to be the covenant of grace, hmm. and they often will describe it as a covenant of work. So I, I'm very confident in calling that a majority position. However, I'm aware of at least two cases uh, that would be outliers to this. The first would be John Spilsbury, who's one of the first to write on this subject. In my, in From Shadow to Substance, I argue or note that though Spilsbury does not call the, or let's put it positively, although Spilsbury affirms the Abrahamic covenant to be the covenant of grace, he sets up the arguments that the Baptists use to say the Abrahamic covenant isn't the covenant of grace. And so it's not that Spilsbury is so different, but but I can't say he goes there because he doesn't go there in his work. Let's set him to the side. 
there's one major example of someone who explicitly and knows what he's doing does not believe that the, the Abrahamic covenant is, <laughs> let me affirm it, who does believe <laughs> that the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. And that's Thomas Hardcastle. He was a, a pastor in Bristol. And he gave, he was a, a Church of England minister educated in the universities. And he gave lectures on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And they are in manuscript form at the Bristol Baptist College. And in those lectures in the 16, early 1670s, uh, when he comes to discussion of covenant theology, uh, he explicitly affirms, with a, a brief discussion showing he knows what he's talking about, he explicitly affirms that the Abrahamic covenant is, uh, is the covenant of grace. Apart from Hardcastle, and his, his work isn't even published, I'm not. I think that Spilsbury is probably the the only one that I could point to. I mean, I, I hope other people will read and you know add to the data that I've collected. Uh, yeah. um, now that so that's one area of of small diversity. Another would be how they view the Mosaic Covenant. Some of them say in the strongest terms it is the covenant of works, uh, and some take a more Cameron Owen type position where it is like the covenant of works, and it is a covenant of works, but it's not the covenant of works. And so you'll get different strengths of understanding in that, but that takes us back to Bunyan. Um, you know, Bunyan, <laughs> Adam and Moses do the same thing for Bunyan because he's following Luther. And who was Bunyan's associate? Who was a gifted brother at his church? It was Nehemiah Cox. You know, Nehemiah Cox kept the church book uh, while he was there. Um, and so... Bunyan's thought is certainly a contextual influence for at least someone like Nehemiah. And, and Bunyan's work on the covenants was, I believe, published at least twice in the 17th century. So he, he kind of represents the strong side of that question. Um, yeah, so th there is diversity on those points. There's diversity on how to speak about the, the covenant of grace. Is it conditional or unconditional? Is faith a condition? And they'll all agree faith is necessary. Some are fine calling it a condition of connection. It must come in, in connection, but they all affirm God provides it, God supplies it. And so you'll get differences of opinion on how to describe that. Um, so there, in those areas, we see diversity. That's, that's interesting. So, so the view that is known as 1689 federalism would be the view that you've just described as the majority view from the 17th century. Now, Fast forward to the 20th century, and there's a resurgence in Calvinistic Baptists and Baptist covenant theology. Um, I think it's fair to say that when that resurgence began, 1689 federalism would have been, if not, if it had not totally disappeared, it was definitely in the minority. So then it seems like there's a, been a resurgence the last, I don't know, maybe a couple of decades. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But, um, just kind of talk us through why you think 1689 federalism fell out of favor. Was it just as simple as, well, Calvinism and, and covenant theology fell out of favor amongst Baptists altogether, and that just went with it? Um, or was there were there other historical things going on? And then talk a bit about the resurgence as well, please. Yeah, let's start just in modern times. I think the main reason why in modern times it seems so new is just a lack of literature. You know, I mean, 
our, our fathers and their fathers who were learning theology over the past 100 years, what was available to them? You know, uh, in terms of Presbyterian covenant theology, large amounts of literature and, and so much that's good in that literature to affirm uh, and is beneficial today. What, what could you have given them uh, over the past 100 years? Very, very little, almost nothing. Almost nothing, especially in an American context where the old literature was all printed in London. And so maybe you could find it in a bookseller there, but how? why would those books be here in the U.S.? Uh, they're not printed here. Uh, so that's that's sort of the, the easy modern answer. And, and I think that we have to be careful, and at times we may have overspoken about things like this, we have to be careful not to pit you know, this like 20th century view versus 1689 federalism, we have to, we have to be careful not to pit it as like the people who reject 1689 federalism and the people mm -hmm. who affirm it, you know, the, the quote unquote 20th century view. It's like the people who didn't know it existed, <laughs> the people right. who do know it existed, you know? Uh, and so I, I think that at times we may have un, unintentionally created an us versus them uh, environment, which has not been healthy at times and doesn't need to be that way. So that, that's one modern thing. Another thing is that, and this will come up again, I think, in some of the questions we'll talk about, the confession doesn't commit you to one of those sides. And, and so if the confession is one of the continuing influences, an actual influence of continuity, it's not perpetuating a particular model. You know, um, we all keep believing the same things about justification because justification is very clearly spelled out in the confession. But the confession is is fairly basic in its commitments in chapter seven, and is, so I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but was that by design that they left it open to um, different positions in chapter seven? I don't know if there's a definitive answer to that. Okay, let me come back to it. Can you ask me that question again? Sure. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. No, no, it's okay. Um, I, I want to think about why it wasn't why 1689 federalism was not in favor before the past hundred years. And, and this is, these are somewhat theories that I would have to do more reading and investigation to assert with confidence, but this is, this is how I see it. And it'll be right to a certain extent. It'll be wrong to a certain extent. In the, in the 17th century, Infant baptism is woven into the fabric of the nation, first through the Church of England, and then as the Church of England falls with the fall of Charles I, the Presbyterians are still going to weave it. It's still going to be a part of the church settlement in the nation. And so the particular Baptists of the 17th century, infant baptism is all around them, and so many of them were performing infant baptisms when they were ministers in the Church of England. Benjamin Cox, Edward Harrison, Hansard Knowles, Christopher Blackwood and others were ministers in the Church of England. And so infant baptism was not just an idea that they rejected or came to reject. It was a part of the nation and the, the life that they lived. And their neighbors would all have their children taken to be baptized. And so by opposing infant baptism, they're opposing something that they think their neighbors are being forced into or, or maybe not forced, but funneled into through the state church system. That, that's a big thing that makes infant baptism very important for them to oppose as they first come out of it and as they see a church state putting baptism on everybody and, and et cetera. Also, um, 
as the Church of England is restored with the Charles II restoration in the 1660s, nonconformists kind of have to prove that they're not, that they're orthodox. They're not crazy people, you know, and so they have to constantly defend themselves. They have to justify who we are uh, and our orthodoxy because they're already liable to persecution. But if you're if you're super heretical, then you're you could get killed. You could be uh, executed, you know. And so there's a need for them to defend themselves. And that's that's one of the reasons why Second London, I believe, Chapter Seven, is not interested in getting into a credo pedo debate. Second London, Chapter Seven, is saying. Um, hey, there's this guy named Thomas Collier who is known as a particular Baptist, and he just published a massive work full of heresy, and everyone thinks that's what we believe. And his book is called, subtitle, A Confession of Faith. And so they're like, uh, we need to vindicate ourselves. We need to prove to the public that we're not Socinians. Let's, we need to publish our confession. What should we do? Let's use the same words that the independents and the Presbyterians used. And in chapter 7, they commit themselves to, as we said earlier, the unity of Reformed Covenant theology, condemnation in Adam and the covenant of works, salvation in Christ and the covenant of grace, and they leave it at that. Did they also leave it open because of diversity in the Baptist camp? That very well could be. Thomas Hardcastle was alive, and the Bristol Church was very much a part of what was happening during that time. That could be. Uh, but I, I can't give a definitive answer to that. Okay. Coming back to how things changed, you have this need to defend yourself and vindicate yourself. 1689 comes along, the act of toleration. Now you can believe whatever you want and do whatever you want, and no one's going to bother you for it, which means you don't have to keep defending yourself. You don't have to keep justifying your existence to anyone. You can just be who you want to be. I think that that relieves a great deal of pressure. I think that also by the time you get to the end of the 17th century, a ton of literature has already been published by the particular Baptists. They're just repeating their arguments by the end of the 17th century. So there was, there's not very much, you don't have to defend yourself. The literature's already been written. They move on to other things. And in the early 18th century, they have bigger fish to fry. Orthodox Trinitarianism is heavily under attack. Almost all of the Presbyterians, almost all the Congregationalists fall into Unitarianism. And the particular Baptists, some of them do, but some of them stay strong. So defending credo-baptism against infant baptism is hardly a priority when you're dealing with rampant Unitarianism affecting the, the three denominations, as they would call them. They often had meetings of the three denominations. That, that's way more like, we got to deal with this. I don't need to write on infant baptism. So in the early 18th century, defending credo-baptism or Baptist covenant theology, in my, as I see it, was not a priority. And I have instances in the 18th century of writers who, and this is in From Shadow to Substance, writers who say, see Mr. Cox on the covenants. Or they say in a, in a handwritten note in a copy of Cox's work that's in the Regents uh, Angus Library in Regents Park College, Oxford, is... Um, is a note that says, William Fuller, who was a Baptist minister, William Fuller says that this is the best work on the covenants, and I agree. Um, and that's Benjamin Bedham, who did the exposition of the catechism. So you can see how for some of them, and that's pretty late in the 18th, 18th century, for some of them, they're still reading those things, 
but they're like, hey, that, that was good, you know, and they don't feel a need to, to do anything about it. So the, liter the body of literature kind of stays in the 17th century. And they have different polemics to deal with. And I, I think that those are the main reasons that post-1689, you can choose your battles in a way you couldn't before. And the literature was produced in England and it stayed in England and to a degree. And so is it surprising that in America, you know, 350 years later, those ideas have somewhat fallen by the wayside as we've had our own, the American Baptist Church has had its own issues to face and its own history to deal with. I don't think that that's all that surprising. And it, it's certainly not a, I don't see a doctrinal shift, like, well, they started to believe different things. I have not read enough of John Gill. Uh, some people point to John Gill and say, well, John Gill seems to be a major departure, and he's a huge influence that is being read and is being republished. And then I've heard other people say, well, if you read Gill more carefully and more completely, he actually does continue to teach the, the model from the 17th century. I have not done the reading to give any kind of answer to that question. Um, but it would, he would definitely be a contextual influence to say, what's the trajectory of thinking, at least for Gill? We know that others like Bedham and Fuller are reading Cox and saying, fine, cool, it's done. Uh, did Gill push things in a certain way? That could be, but I, I can't answer that question yet. So again, you get to our time and the literature is not there. The discussions have long since gone quiet. Uh, it's not surprising to me. So the, the literature coming here is part of what caused the resurgence, I guess. I mean, the, mo the more recent resurgence. Well, there's... I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but there's this wonderful thing called Ebo, <laughs> early English books online. And suddenly in our modern age, click, 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 click. I have all the books, <laughs> literally, you know, take the time to click your mouse enough times and you'll have every single book available on particular Baptist covenant theology from the 17th century. Hmm. My, my father was able to do that later in his life. His, you know, the generation before him, would not have been able, they would have had to go to England and spend a few months in particular libraries and find the stuff. And whereas we just click a click. So I think that a big part of the resurgence has been a new availability of literature. Okay. So all, I guess on the di diversity of opinion here, I, I'm somewhat more curious for personal reasons. Um, when it comes to our own, I guess, theological position on this in our own Reformed tribe, Baptist tribe now, is it possible to understand the Abrahamic covenant as a covenant of grace and remain part of the 1689? I guess, I don't, I, I guess it would depart you from 1689 federalism, but as you mentioned, it seems that the confession itself is not specific enough to eliminate a position like that. So what do you what is your take on that? Yeah, I think that's a very important question and I think the answer is confessionally speaking it it absolutely should be uh allowed to to be a part of the same community of confessors. You know, I don't think that a person who holds that is departing from the confession. And again, I think this is a place where at times and I would be looking at myself here, we may have said too much. And, and here's what I mean. If we say 1689 federalism represents the covenant theology of the confession, 
that's kind of true and false. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it is what stands behind why chapter seven is so different from the Westminster Confession. Like you look at Westminster and you look at Second London and you think these two are very different. Why are they very different? Well, because the particular Baptists believed different things. And so in that sense, 1689 federalism is the covenant theology that, you know, of the confession, but really what stands behind the confession. And if you talk about, okay, well, what does the confession, confession actually commit you to? Mm -hmm. I do not think that we could bind anyone's conscience from, I don't think that there's any historical theological argument that could that could solidify that the language of chapter seven eliminates the idea or eliminates the possibility of the idea that the Abrahamic covenant is actually the covenant of grace. Uh, I, I think it is allowed. I think the language just isn't specific enough. So, man, that, so this makes me wonder just about confessionalism in general and our own understanding of how tightly we should hold certain doctrinal positions. So, I mean, when Baptists, I guess, historically and modern have thought about confessions, at least in the Reformed background, how important is it that our understanding of particular confessional sections matches what the authors actually thought outside of that? So we gave that example of chapter seven, where it's not super specific, but it seems that the majority are wanting to say the Abrahamic covenant is not the covenant of grace. Um, so how much do we have to weigh what people are thinking outside of the actual confessional text when we understand what it means to hold the confession? Well, in a way, it's, I feel like it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis because one of the disadvantages that we have to face as particular Baptists as 1689ers is that our forefathers only wrote about certain things. And so the body of literature available to us to inform our understanding of the confession is, is limited, at least from the particular Baptist perspective. And now that, that problem is somewhat resolved by the fact that because they agreed with the Pato Baptist. So go read John Owen on this, or, or go read the, the scholastics, the reformed scholastics about the doctrine of God and such things. And, and those things are extremely, the Westminster divines read their works on the parts of the confession that are the same. Boom. There you go. Um, we have to use external sources to inform our understanding of the confession, no doubt, but we just have to be careful not to, not to read them into the confession. Some, sometimes uh, I think that chapter 26 on the church uh, commits to certain things that it commits to certain things. But then I think that the practice of the particular Baptist had some variety. And so I don't think you can come out with a one cookie cutter version of, yes, it's congregationalism, but there could be variations of congregationalism within the particular Baptists. And you can't read all their practice into one particular version of it. Uh, so that would be another example. So it, it's a give and take. It's like, well, why is this different? because they believed these things, but what does it actually say? And, and there's, we can understand that they were in certain cases, uh, let's see, in the, uh, in the appendix on baptism, it talks about how we are not all agreed about baptism and, and church membership, about baptism and communion. And so it says we've intentionally avoided, we've omitted such things from the mm -hmm. confession. 
because if they took a particular stance on that, then they couldn't agree. And they weren't willing to adopt a matter of difference as an article of faith. And so we can, that tells us something. It tells us, okay, well then what is in here should be commonly agreed upon. Read the chapter on, on the church and, and worship in that chapter or of religious worship in the, in the Lord's day, excuse me, not the chapter on the church. And it, it talks about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. <laughs> but most of those churches were not singing at all and thought that it was actually quite a sin to sing in church. Hmm. And so it's, it's like, okay, well, uh, I look at the practice and I look at the confession. How am I to understand this? Well, there were some who did believe they should be singing and were singing. So that means there may be parts of the confession that they know they affirm the same language, but they actually understand it in different ways. That's, that's tricky, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but the general idea from the preface is that we, whoever the we is, we agree. Uh, we hold these things as representative of our faith. And the external writings inform and help us to understand, but they, they can't be one-to-one -one correlated necessarily to the confession in every case. Okay, yeah. So w before we wrap up this discussion about um, covenant theology, I do. I really enjoyed how you closed the first chapter of the mystery of Christ when you talked about how studying these things should um, really promote worship, and you end the chapter with by quoting uh, Romans eleven thirty three through thirty six, and um, <clears throat> that made me think about you know the average church member and um, why should church members care about covenant theology and um so i think an obvious example would be that it should promote us um to worship but are there please expand on that if you would like but also are there any other um reasons that the average church member should really develop a love and a care uh, for learning more about covenant theology when we sign up for websites and digital services we often have to click i have read the terms and accept the conditions and we haven't actually read the terms and accepted the conditions because those things don't matter to us. But if you buy a house or if you sign a lease on a car or you buy a car, you, you're very much concerned with the terms and conditions. They're important to you because your well-being, <laughs> you, maybe your survival depends on those terms and conditions. And so also for, for every member, why should I care about covenant theology? What are the terms and conditions? I will remember your sins no more. Like there's no more wonderful commitment uh, than God's covenant with us. This is God's covenant with us. This is the new covenant in my blood. I will remember your sins no more. Your lawless deeds, they are gone. They are removed. They're forgotten. And so covenant theology is all about our salvation. It's all about our assurance. And and the, the London Confession, Second London Confession, uh, talks about in the chapter on assurance, perseverance, repentance, it appeals to the covenant uh, as the ground for those things. Why should I repent? Why should I believe that God will forgive me? Why should I repent daily? Why should I live a life of repentance? Why should I persevere? Why should I think God is my father? Why, you know, all these things, the covenant informs that I am your God. You are my people. You are my own and I will forgive your sins. And so covenant theology is, is everything to the believer. It's salvation. And the fact that we have a, a covenantal meal 
we have the Lord's Supper to weekly remind us, to regularly remind us of God's promises. God says, you you guys are so forgetful. <laughs> I'm going to put my promises in your face. I'm going to put my promises in your hands. I'm going to put my promises for your taste buds to enjoy so that the promise your sins are forgiven is overwhelming all your senses mm-hmm. on a regular basis. And so covenant theology is, is wonderfully, wonderfully practical for every every believer because it's the terms and conditions. It is the the details of their salvation uh, now and forevermore. And we, we can praise the Lord for that. Mm. So for those who are interested and want to learn more about it, what are the go-to books on it? I mean, obviously I imagine you would recommend the mystery of Christ. I imagine um, your own book. What besides that would you recommend? And we recommend that book too, just in case anybody was <laughs> yeah. wondering. No, it is a really good book. Yeah. For covenant theology? Yeah, for covenant theology. Some people may not like this, but for someone who just wants a very introductory uh, understanding, I, I do really like um, Shriner's Covenant and God's Purpose. Hmm. It's, it's very small. It's a short studies in biblical theology, very easy to read. And you may think, well, why? that sounds a little bit strange to me. If, sadly, the vast majority vast majority of Baptist literature on covenant theology is heavily concerned with polemics and is constantly stopping to attack our Pado baptist brethren. And there's a place and time for polemics, and, and there's a need to answer arguments and, and posit, um, pose criticisms, yes. Mm-hmm. But for someone who's trying to get started, you don't want to send them to war. You want to send them to you know training school. Um, of sorts. Give them a foundation uh, that they can then use to engage others uh, in an informed and, and hopefully charitable way. And so I, I honestly struggle to recommend uh, a more reformed Baptist book hmm. on this subject be- because I, I think that it can set the set the tone in a poor way. And I think that while there are, are bits and pieces of, of the, the book I recommended that I might quibble at, uh, it it's fairly basic and fairly broad, and it can be a good start to then advance to other books that may fill in some of the details. And let me say one other thing. You may think, well, what about the Cox Owen volume? It, that's not an introductory book. Benjamin Keach said in 1699 that, it's, that Cox's style is too high for ordinary capacities. Those are his words. <laughs> so, if, so if Benjamin Keach is like, Cox's book is hard for the normal person to read and that's in their day then we we fast forward 300 and whatever years and we are we're not conversant in the literature and that's our first book like i don't blame anyone who comes to me and says i didn't really understand what cox was saying i'd say join the club (laughs) you know uh just like when we read john owen we often say that Seems right, but I need to reread that. So Cox is definitely something I think that's valuable to read and helpful. But he he is one book in a stream of literature. He has a narrow focus. He's not teaching a complete covenant theology. He's only concerned with Adam to Abraham. And his style is is high, to use Benjamin Keach's language. So I recommend Cox's book. I think it's helpful, but it's not an introductory volume. 
uh, and it's it's one that has to be read carefully and slowly. It's it's not just going to read right off the page into your head unless you're extremely familiar with that time of writing and that stream of literature. So I I do think that the hand to your member in the pew mm -hmm. would be. I've tried to write my book to be accessible for everybody, but Shriners would be even more so. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't get into as much technical uh, detail as as my book does. That's good stuff. So for those who previously weren't familiar with who you are and want to start following you and what you're writing and what you're doing, are there places that they can go to do that? I do have a blog, pettyfrance.wordpress.com. I don't honestly don't post there very often. And then on Twitter, I am at petty underscore France for the Petty France Church. If you go to Amazon, a variety of my books are available there, Baptist history and, and theology books. Um, but on Twitter, I just, I, I'm not super active on Twitter, but I, I'm there. I like to post 17th century snippets and pictures of the Huntington Library and gardens. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, we've had a lot of fun and learned a lot from you uh, talking about Baptist Covenant Theology today, and we're very thankful that you took the time to talk with us on it. Um, and for our listeners who have uh, made it this far, we encourage you to check out all these works. Um, I'll obviously link to them in the resources in the show notes so you can easily get there um, instead of having to travel to whatever library might hold them uh, like uh, our forefathers would have to do. So... Thanks again, uh, Dr. Renahan, for talking with us. And for those who have been listening, you've been listening to the only Analytic Baptist Confessional podcast that exists to my knowledge. Um, and we're very thankful you tuned in. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.